pray responsibly Psalm 43. Which is a rather short psalm. It's a good one, and it talks about being led by the truth. And so I thought it appropriate to pray together this morning. Page 801 in your hymnals. I will give you a moment and drink some more coffee. Okay, Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Let's pray together, O God, you are the truth. And we pray that we would know the truth that you are. Uh, Indeed, that um, we would live it in following your son, Jesus, who is the truth, that we would, um, and that by that truth, we might find peace and bear witness to it for the world, Um, that what you have said about Jesus is true, and what you are doing in him is happening, really, in the world right now. We ask it in the name of Jesus, who was and is the Christ and reigns with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, to one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So we are uh, at the ninth commandment this morning. We are almost there to the end of the Ten Commandments. And as I was talking to Matt, I realized that as I was editing it, editing this yesterday, I just took the text out. But it's simple. It's the same in Exodus And in Deuteronomy, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And we'll begin, uh, I think it would be appropriate to begin uh, at the end, actually, of your handout with the Westminster Larger Catechism, just because we'll have that in your minds as we talk about all the other things, because I'm not really going to reference it directly. So uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving desire, desiring and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering for their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency and ready receiving of good rapport and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name, defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, study and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good rapport. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are 
all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, uh, suburning false witness, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence and a just cause, and holding our peace with iniquity, calling for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful and unequivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstruing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God. And I'm going to stop there. Um, that is quite a bit. Um, all of you take that and go and send them more. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, no, obviously, uh, the Ninth Commandment includes a number of different things, and the main thing uh, that it speaks to is the truth. And what does it mean not only to speak and to tell the truth, um, but how it is that the truth is important to our community and what it means for us to live the truth. And this is... Uh, and what this means for us, and I think what we see when we're looking at these duties of the Ninth Commandment, and we're looking at all of these different things, right, that are there. These are all the things that you're supposed to do. This is how you, you don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and this is how you actually live for the truth and do these things. Uh, I want to begin by, by saying that it's important to realize that uh, what this is not referring to is some kind of universal moral principle that doesn't have any kind of reference to it. It's not saying that, well, we all sort of know and, and realize that telling the truth is a good thing. And so what we need to do is tell the truth. And understanding, okay, well, we should tell the truth all the time. That that's what the universal standard is. Um, it's also not saying that we should tell the truth all the time unless or until that doesn't become practical. Or it affects uh, more people wrongly than other people. And so if someone is our enemy, for example, um, then obviously now we can make exceptions to what it means to tell the truth. Uh, it means actually that telling the truth is part of what it means to follow Jesus. That we don't bear, that we, we don't bear false witness against our neighbor because God is the truth. And so if we're going to understand what it means to be a people who live the truth, if we're going to understand what it means to follow the Ten Commandments, or in this case, the Ninth Commandment, then we're, we need to start with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And because Jesus reveals the truth that God is, Obeying the law, and in this case the Ninth Commandment, does not mean that we are to conform our individual lives to some sort of standard that we have to figure out for ourselves. And so we read the Westminster Larger Catechism because that gives us a really good idea of what that standard has. No, obeying the Ninth Commandment means conforming our life as a community to Jesus 
And so as an act of faith, conceiving together what it means to live a life beset with the love of God and neighbor. Because the result of that will mean that as a people, we will show the world what it is that God is actually truth. And we will reveal ourselves to be God's people in doing so. And that's what is at the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. The way Peter Lightheart says this and says that the first use of the law is always Christological. At the heart of the Ten Commandments is Jesus Christ himself. And if we are to know why the Ten Commandments are important to us, we might as well just ask ourselves, why is Jesus important to us? Now, I will revisit this again in a little bit to talk about kind of universal principles. I'm trying not to dig way deep into um, philosophy or in ethics or anything like that. Caleb's laughing at me because he knows um, that that's what I'm trying to do. But it is, I think, really important. Uh, I tried to say this last time that the, the Ten Commandments are fundamentally about our life with and for God. And so when we're talking about why we don't murder, it's because God is life, that in Jesus is light and life. That what we're talking about adultery, what we're really talking about is how God is faithful to his promises always and forever. And in Jesus, they are always yes and amen. That when we're talking about stealing, we're understanding that God is gracious and loving and merciful and full of steadfast love. And when we're talking about lying, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is, Jesus is, God is the reference point for understanding what it is that the commandments mean. And that means that, yes, there is an important sort of universality to the commandments because God is spirit that upholds all things. And so it is good to not kill, or perhaps it's easier to say, um, we all should Uh, worship the Lord our God and him and him alone, that there is a universality to that. But there is also um, a contextuality to that. And we've actually seen this. We've talked about the different exceptions to the fifth commandment and the, the eighth commandment. And there are potential exceptions to the ninth commandment of lying and stealing. Um, We even understand in some ways the contextuality of the first commandment. Um, That conversion is required, in fact, in order to obey the first commandment. And we understand that as part of the context of what it means to follow and obey the first commandment. These are really important. But when we're making those exceptions, we don't just turn into some kind of consequentialist. We're not saying, well, the intentions don't always work, so we have to look at the outcomes. What we're saying is God, the story of God reveals what it means for us to live these commandments in our lives. And our lives are always located in a particular place to a particular people. And so it gets a little bit more complicated than we want it to sometimes. And yet it is in recognizing those limits of complications that we begin to see what these, <coughs> the, the, our sins become revealed to us, the nature of our repentance becomes deeper Um, And we begin to deepen our communion with God. Because, of course, when we do that, we don't get to just look around and say, well, I don't really kill anybody, so everything's fine. But we also don't don't get, we don't have to to deepen our shame and say, well, I'm really angry all the time, and that means that I'm just a a horrible, 
um, violator of the fifth commandment all the time because of this, that, and the other. Um, because when we understand the reference, when we understand Jesus, we can see, of course, his own anger at things that are wrong, and that if we are angry about the sins of the world, or people doing wrong things to other people, or people doing wrong things to us, that there is a righteousness to that. But we can only understand that um, when we look at Jesus. I hope this makes a little bit of sense. And so what I'm going to do, uh, perhaps is a little bit different than what, we're, what we have done before as we look at the ninth commandment. We are going to look at the trial of Jesus. Uh, because in the trial of Jesus, we see a paradigmatic case of the people of Israel bearing false witness against their neighbor, who is Jesus. And of course, in so doing, bearing false witness against God. And hopefully it will help us um, to stay inside this paradigm of discipleship, to think about the commandments in terms of discipleship, but also to be somewhat exhaustive and to consider it. So to begin in Mark 14, um, it begins with a trial, of course, that um, they led Jesus to the high priests and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter is following him at a distance and he was sitting with guards and warming himself at a fire. And the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they had found none. Now, this is the beginning, well, not the beginning of the Passion Era, but important part of the Passion Narrative is actually the witness of neighbors against Jesus. And what it shows us is that uh, primarily or fundamentally or classically, the idea of false witness is judicial, that it has to do with an eyewitness account, and that a proper testimony against someone requires a proper inquiry. I've never been an eyewitness in court. I don't know if you have ever been an eyewitness in court, um, but it is obviously a very serious thing. Um, and it requires uh, a proper inquiry, a, a rethinking of what actually happened, right? And you have to be able to name precisely the events that happened, the things that you're being asked about, to say only what the truth is, to not, and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but not to sort of embellish. Um, not to try, at least, not to, to, to put out there something that didn't happen. Um, but, of course, this gets difficult. And we see here that, um, well, we'll see next that in, in uh, the, the Old Testament law, actually two eyewitnesses were, requ were required for death. But the reason why uh, this proper inquiry is required why it's important to name um, things and their meaning and their purpose, according, of course, to, which is part of what Adam did in the garden. And if we want to go back to sort of the first bearing of false witness, it is, did God really say this? Um, but that would be kind of the first instance of bearing false witness, that <laughs> the, the effects of lying are not just individualistic, that they are communal, that our eyewitness accounts relate very much to other people, that when we bear witness against someone else in court, that someone else is depending upon that for justice to be served, that the community is depending on that for justice to be served, because depending on what happens to this person, the community is going to be changed forever. And it depends on other commandments, 
So in this case, um, Jesus is on trial and he's going to be murdered if someone bears false witness against him. And the classical instances of this are both murder uh, or a murder trial uh, or stealing and theft. That it is um, often that you can, in the scriptures, uh, Naboth's vineyard is a good example of this, where bearing false in um, first King, or yeah, First Kings 21, um, that, no, sorry, Genesis 21, um, where bearing false witness allows for Naboth to steal, or allows for Naboth's vineyard to be stolen uh, away from him, even within the justice, so to speak, of the court system. And so false testimony is about much more than just speaking lies. It is also, uh, as it was related to the third commandment, speaking empty phrases uh, or uh, intending to communicate a certain lie. Uh, so this would include something like spin, right? Where, where spin is where you're trying to say true things but really indicate something else other than the truth. That that qualifies as a false witness. And all of these things are encompassed in the ninth commandment. And in the trial of Jesus, um, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And this is important because in the Old Testament law, you had to have two eyewitness accounts for a murder trial that agreed on what had happened. And this speaks to the complexity of eyewitness accounts and the complexity of what it means for us to tell the truth, that it often leads to disagreements. And this is true even and perhaps especially in the modern world when we look at video. That the assumption is, well, if we have a video, then we can look and we can see exactly what happened. And all of us can agree that we can look at this event and see exactly what happened. And that decidedly is not what happens, right? That, I mean, everybody starts to get a different kind of, of read on what is happening. And this, of course, leads us into um, this idea of relativism, which I'm gonna assume that you are sort of broadly familiar with a little bit, um, which is basically the idea uh, that because when we, that, that looking at the, the experience of looking at a video and seeing something that, is, that has happened, that, but 10 different people have 10 different versions of the truth that actually happened, then what that must mean then is that there is no such thing as an actual truth, right? Now, if you are familiar with this argument, then you will understand um, that in order to give the argument of relativism, you have to make one important universal statement, and that is that all truth is relative, that you can't actually, that, that, um, that it goes against itself, but it does speak to something that's very important, and that is that the truth and, and witnessing to something does require complex moral discernment. It really, really, really does. Um, but it, that does not mean that there is no such thing as truth. It does mean that our knowledge of the truth in this world is always fallen and finite and provisional 
and perspectival. That we do not have ownership of the truth. We cannot see things from God's perspective. And in fact, we can only see things from our own perspective. And that is okay. Uh, What is important for us is to understand that that is what we're doing when we're looking at the truth. And this, um, if you're in Bible study with me, I mentioned this quite a bit. Um, At the beginning of John Calvin's commentary to the Romans, he tries to answer this question that I uh, imagine he got asked, why are you writing another commentary to the Romans? Because, you know, the reformers were super into writing commentaries to the Romans. And this is important because some of that could come from the assumption, okay, look, um, the Bible is the word of God, and so we're trying to understand that word. How is it that we are going to have all these different explanations of what it is that God actually says? Do we not believe in sola scriptura, right? And John Calvin responds to his friend Simon Gerneus, and he says um, that God did not give any one person the knowledge, the ability to know all there is in the scriptures for two reasons. One, so that he might be made humble, and two, so that he might rely on his friends. And that the truth requires boast, both of those things. That there is an understanding what it means to be a truthful people, a need for an epistemological humility, that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And that the testimony of Kohelet and Ecclesiastes is actually compelling. That he sought out to know and to gain all the wisdom there was in the world, to know the truth about what was going on under the sun, right? And he determined that all was vanity, that he could not actually get his mind around. The the truth is not a commodity that we get to own and take and move for ourselves. It is always something that God is showing and declaring to us, and we have to discover by the Spirit how to interact with that truth. And that is naturally a communal kind of response. And so this, of course, then leads to the next question. Okay, well, then what does it mean for me to tell the truth? If it's difficult, right, to distinguish between truth and lies, then how am I supposed to do this? And this comes up um, in the trial account. Some stood up and bore false witness against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. I've said this before, but I think it's important to realize that the trial of Jesus doesn't happen uh, because uh, the Pharisees just don't like him or because they're jealous of him. Um, that the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are putting Jesus on trial because they believe that he is going to start a revolution um, that is subversive against the government of Rome and that is going to make the the governors and even above the governors of Rome um, mad and frustrated enough that they're going to oppress the Jewish people. This is a really important thing. 
that if there was a Messiah that was going to break apart the peace of how Judaism fit within the Roman government, then it was the scribes and the Pharisees that were going <laughs> to, that the governors were going to get mad at. And their heads were on the platter. And after them, it was going to be the Jewish people. And so the trial of Jesus is done in the name of peace. You have to understand this. And indeed, in the name of violations against the commandment. That from where the Pharisees were standing, he was violating the first and second commandments. That both he was God and the image of God in the flesh. And so it would be easy to understand um, why you might want to bear false witness. Because this person is an enemy against Israel and against the peace of Rome um, and against all that God has shown to us in the law. This is part of the perspective that the scribes and the Pharisees are taking. Now, of course, they are dead wrong in this. And in showing that, um, revealing all the sins and their own deception against themselves that um, that dates back into the Old Testament. Uh, And yet it is nonetheless true. And this creates a dilemma of when is it? Is it okay? to tell a lie. And of course, the classic, or at least in my mind, um, one of the classic examples of this is the Holocaust. Um, That if you are uh, one of the people that had Jewish refugees hiding in their homes, and you're watching um, the first scene of Inglorious Bastards, and Christoph Waltz is walking in your door and having a glass of milk and trying to figure out where they are. What do you do? And there was, in fact, um, a, one of the, the outposts of the kingdom of God during World War II um, was in uh, France. It was this little French Huguenot village of Le Chambeau, and there was this reformed parish uh, led by this pastor named André Trocmay um, that became this place where refugees, especially children, Jewish children would go and find safety uh, from the Nazis. So, and the Nazis did come and start asking him questions about where these people were, what did it mean, and what do you do? Now, there are opposing views on this, okay? There are opposing views on what do you do in this situation. Um, John Frame, I will say, says um, that there are instances in which it is appropriate to lie, and that this would be one of them. And the reason is because that it is appropriate to lie to one's enemies. And he does this by uh, trying, to, trying to explain how, in Luke chapter 10, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan does not actually universalize the neighbor. Um, that, that the end of that parable, the goal of that parable, is not to say necessarily that everyone is our neighbor, um, but the one who showed mercy is the neighbor. And so uh, because of that, he's able to look back on the different instances, especially in the Old Testament, um, where people bore false witness in situations like these, David and Rahab and others against their enemies so that others could flee um, in the name of God and say um, that this is an instance in which it would be okay Um, to not tell the truth. Now, I do not agree with John Frame's interpretation 
of Luke chapter 10. I, be, I do believe um, that <laughs> the force of the parable of the Good Samaritan is to universalize the neighbor. And in fact, I believe that the statement, um, the one uh, who's shown mercy is actually part of what shows it because it demonstrates just how radical what Jesus was trying to say. Um, that the, the person to whom Jesus is talking can't bring himself to even say Samaritan um, because there was so much division between the Jews and Samaritans. And so he talks about that person as a Samaritan, as the one who showed him mercy. Um, but in so doing actually demonstrates just how radical what it is that Jesus is trying to say. And so I am going um, to add in another opposing view to frame and let you just sort of sit in the middle of it, and that is Augustine. Because Augustine wrote a book about lying, and in it he basically says, do not lie. Um, that it is not okay to lie. But he does have an interesting um, sort of economical approach to the truth. And he says that you can indicate the truth without actually even saying something. You can indicate truth even in silence. And so what he does is he distinguishes the truth from the whole truth from nothing but the truth. And this, I think, is an important distinction. Um, it's one that we do all the time. It is particularly one, funny enough, um, that we like to exercise in theological examinations for candidates on the floor of presbytery when they are asked questions, of course, about what the truth is. And I'm constantly telling people less is more. That just answer the question as it is asked. And you can do so, and sometimes you can do so with just a one-word answer. And the reason is, is that once um, candidates will often sort of get down on rabbit trails and they'll totally get themselves um, tied up in knots because to explain and to demonstrate the whole truth as a recent seminary graduate in front of a bunch of pastors on a presbytery floor um, can be a rather uh, dangerous situation to do when you're trying to get them to vote for you. Now this is the kind of thing um, that is being referenced here. It is, in fact, often the same thing that we do with people that we love. Um, I haven't said this yet, um, but I think it is true that the people that we, we lie to the most are the people that we care about the most um, because we want to protect them. And that, of course, is, is part of what eyewitness accounts are for, trying to protect the people that we love and the community that we have. Um, and this is something that we do. And so when people ask us, you know, am I... Am I even silly things about how we look or how we're acting, um, about what, whether what we're doing is right or wrong, we tend to adjudicate between the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we do so in ways that um, we determine are fitting. And sometimes they are fitting, but oftentimes and sometimes they are not. And I will use then Trocmé as an example that what he said um, based on his reading of um, Luke 10, which is the same as mine, that it does universalize the neighbor, and uh, his reading of Galatians 13, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor free, nor slave nor free, um, that when he was asked uh, where the Jews were, he said, we do not know what a Jew is. We know only men. Um, and, and so what he was doing is communicating in, in, 
and speaking the truth about the dignity of the people that were there as human beings, which was in fact a protest against the very thing that the Nazis were doing. And it was their false witness against their neighbor to say that um, it was justifiable um, to kill all of these people because they were not themselves human. And Truck May decides that what he says is that, that is, um, that's what he's going to front and that that's what the truth is. And of course, that is the truth. Um, it is not the whole truth. It is certainly not nothing but the truth, but it is the truth. And again, um, this is why it's really important to understand um, truth-telling as uh, discipleship. Um, because <coughs> truth-telling and obedience to the law is not fundamentally always about the moment of decision. It is often, uh, and indeed always, a factor of character. <coughs> that there are, to understand sort of the commandments as universal is to think of them either as in the moment of decision that I'm going to make a particular kind of action that I've thought about and that I've discussed, or I'm going to be able to determine a particular kind of consequence. But the truth of our lives is a little bit different than that. And a good example of this is, um, is Sully Sullenberger. You know this story? Um, when he takes off and he's got you know, a couple hundred people in an airplane and some geese fly into his, you know, the wings of the airplane, he's got to make a decision right then. And he doesn't really have time to think, oh, you know, what is the right thing that I'm supposed to do here? I, I need to go back and check my Westminster Larger Catechism to figure out all the different ways in which, you know, that I need to obey the truth or not. Um, and he doesn't even get to think about <laughs> he's not even, I would imagine, in that moment, um, only, th he's not thinking about the people of New York, necessarily, and whether this plane is going to hurt other people. All he's thinking about is, I've got to land this plane. And he has, I, I can't remember, like, how long he has to do it, but it's like 45 seconds or something crazy that he has to make this decision. And he makes the decision why. He makes the decision because he's done over and over and over again a number of different simulations for this exact thing. And so he just acts out of instinct and makes the decision there based on the kind of pilot that he is, which is one that is very seasoned. And ethics or discipleship or holiness or sanctification is about that. Discipleship is about that. That is what I mean by becoming a people who are and tell, who are the truth or who are truthful. That we are people who have practiced by listening to the truth, by speaking the truth to one another, um, by confessing the truth to God and to one another um, in such a way that when we get into these radical and difficult and dilemmas that there are no easy answers. We do not know, actually, where, we, where to lie, but we have to make a decision. Um, we are able to do so out of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, and, and, it is, and it is all of those things. And in fact, it is in that way, then, that we begin to include um, the people 
that are often forgotten in universal ethics, and that is you know, different kinds of minorities. And this is what leads to all this like crazy stuff about the ethics of, of feminist ethics and queer ethics and race theory and all these sort of things. And everyone's saying, like, this is going up against every sort of universal principle that we've talked about. And, and yes, like, it's a mad, 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 mad world out there um, in the ethics world. Uh, but the way to navigate it is not to stay in that world of principles and values and um, trying to own the truth. It is following Jesus and understanding that moral discernment is complicated, that it does lean towards people that Jesus loved, um, and that it requires a posture of listening and of humility and of um, relationship with God and other people in order to live a life together. That we cannot make decisions about like what's gonna go on halfway around the world but we can try to figure out what to do about the people that are in this room and how to care for one another. And that, in fact, is part of the witness, our witness to God. Jeremy, you have a question. Yes. Yes. The commandments are only understood communally. Full stop. Yes. Yes. And that is part of the reason, I mean, one of the series of reasons why um, this is important to me is because I think it is, I don't think that your experience is necessarily unique. Um, In fact, I think that it is common, especially in churches like our own, to understand ethics as sort of, well, what do I think about this, that, and the other? What do I believe about this? Well, am I sinning in this way? And how do I need to repress my own desires in in order to do that? And so God really is only gracious to us after we sort of get our act together. And And the commandments are actually trying to live into that. And it's the opposite of that. That commandments are a guidance 
of God and the good life that aren't just coming down from on high, but they are led by Jesus and they are empowered by the Spirit, which means that they are an, out of an abundance of grace. And they have to do fundamentally with the way that we live our lives with one another. They are not about fundamentally, for example, making the world more just. Now, if that happens, would that be a wonderful thing? Yes, I think it would be a wonderful thing. And are there things that we can do in order to do that? Yes, I do think that there are a lot of things that we could do, and we need to enter into the world in order to do that. But we have to understand our limits when we are doing that. And one very important limit in this instance is <laughs> what it means to know the truth, that it is complicated, and it requires listening, and it requires dialogue, and it requires silence, and it requires meditation. None of the things that are practices that we are accustomed to when we are watching television or on our phones or on our computers. Um, I mean, you can make an, I didn't really want to get into this, but I mean, you can get, make an argument that Instagram is just like one big violation of the Ninth Commandment. Because most of us are just trying to show people that we're really not who we are. But we're not doing that because we're malicious. We're doing that because we're insecure. Because we don't believe that God actually loves us as we are. And he does. He does love you as you are. And you don't have to be insecure about that. And in fact, to be able to live out of that in community and to bear witness to one another is what it means to live a good life. And so the response to your being on Instagram isn't necessarily like condemnation. It is understanding, because this is where we all are. And then it is a vision of what our life can actually be. This is why we have the duties that are required and the sins that are forbidden. This is what we mean when we talk about the commandments as holiness and as, commun as communal, not as in the abstract, because we are living our lives, friends. And so what it means to know the truth and to believe these things is to live our lives in a certain way with one another. It is not, if I may say it, like I may put one really fine point about it, not how we vote. Because there are profound limits in what we can actually know in that process. Now, does that mean that voting isn't important? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that, that foundational to what it means to live a life in and through Jesus uh, the politics, if you will, our life together is much more than just statecraft. It is about our life together in a community. <clears throat> okay, I'll move on to why it's hard to tell the truth. Um, hopefully, again, um, to give some compassion and understanding. Um, so the high priests asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is an interesting, when you think about Isaiah 53, um, the mention that there was no deceit that was in Jesus's mouth when he suffered, um, when he was on trial in this moment. And, and it shows for us, I think, all the ways in, we, in which telling the truth is hard. Because the moment that Jesus actually is going to tell the truth here, or indicate the truth by his silence, he knows he's going to die. He knows that that's what's going to happen. 
And um, this is why it's hard to tell the truth, because sometimes it really hurts, and we fear we're going to die if we do that. Um, that we're going to have to lose something really important about ourselves, that we thought about ourselves, um, especially if we've done something wrong or we've hurt somebody else. <coughs> and we have to sort of fess up to that. Um, or more importantly, if someone else has done those things uh, and we are going to hurt them by telling the truth, uh, when asked to tell the truth, uh, we fear that we might break our relationships or dissolve our trust with other people um, and so there are a number of things that we sort of latch on to. It, it's easier to kind of latch on to different kind of false binaries um, of what it means to live a good life and to tell the truth and to say, well, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I can't know everything about the truth, so I'm just going to do what works. <laughs> um, but of course, when we, when we say something like that, oh, I'm just going to do what works, um, we're going to say that, well, when the truth doesn't really work out, in the way that I think it, it should work out. I'm just going to put it over here. Um, but we do this all the time, like for ourselves. And, and we, we like people that do this other thing. Like we say, hey, that guy does what works. You know, the other guy, he, he didn't want to do anything that worked. Um, but this guy, he does uh, what works. But that's, <coughs> all of that is doing is, is setting up this kind of false binary that's easy for us to accept because the world is really complicated and we don't really know what to do. We don't really feel like we can put the world together. The reason you feel like that is because you can't. We can't do that. Only Jesus can do that and put those things together. It's easy um, even to, to rely on different kinds of procedure and say, well, I feel personally about this, but this is just the way that the system works. And again, we're just avoid, avoiding our own responsibility of our neighbor in that moment. That when it's just the system that works this way or the church that does this or this is the way that our community has been for a long time or this is just the way that it is around here, that is a way of avoiding our responsibility to bear witness against or for our neighbor. And we are saying, well, we're, we can just set aside the difficulties of this or of telling the truth. We don't have to actually enter into this because it is difficult and, in fact, awkward to abide the tensions of truth-telling. It is very difficult to do that. In fact, I think that is one of the primary reasons that we, um, that we just hold a lot of stuff in. And we don't tell the truth. Now, we shouldn't necessarily say everything. Like, the reason that you're not telling everybody is because people can hurt you. And so, you know, you should be careful with that and the things that you say. But sometimes it can be an important act of courage and of faith to do that. Um, to, to tell the truth to someone, to, to express that you have borne false witness against them in an important kind of way and want to try to find what? Forgiveness and reconciliation. It is, in fact, this kind of thing that allows us, God, I mean, imagine it, a world where in a debate about how we're supposed to live, we could maybe change our mind. Perhaps change our mind. There was... Um, Alan Jacobs wrote this neat book called How to Think, which is a fun book. Um, it's not necessarily about this because I looked in it, but it reminded me of this. And one of the things he talks about is this debate team. And when you're interviewed on the debate team, one of the things that they ask you um, is how many times has your mind been changed? That that's actually sort of a prerequisite to being on this team. 
Um, and actually, a part of this debate style, um, part of what you have to do is you have to give the best version of the argument of the person that you're debating against. And what the best version means is the one that they accept. And they say, yeah, that's, that gets at the kind of thing that I'm trying to say. This is what it means to enter into discipleship as um, following the, the ninth commandment. Is what would, I mean, imagine if, not in the world, but in the church, we were able to listen to one another in such a way that we could give the best arguments for the people that we, didn't dis that, that we disagreed with about all kinds of things. And we're willing not to move from one side or to the other, but to ask for ourselves, well, what does Jesus say? And then go to the scriptures and try to figure out what that testimony is and figure out if there was a new place to stand. If there was for us a way to say, we do not know what a Jew is, we know only men. Sort of move the conversation to something totally different. What kind of politics would that show to the world? What would that mean for our life? And would that indeed bear witness to the truth that God is? I don't know, honestly, um, but I hope that it would. I can honestly say that as well. Because that is what the Ninth Commandment is about. It's about learning to live the truth is. This is the beginning of Acts, that when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That the living of a true life and bearing witness to the life of Jesus is the mission of the church of God. It just is. It is because the character of that life is one of invitation to the world. But the form of that life, uh, interestingly enough, um, is cruciform. That what it meant for the apostles in Acts to bear witness to the truth that Jesus is meant for that what Luke lays out for us again and again and again is them finding themselves in the same kind of situations where Jesus was, where he was on trial. And people were asking him, were asking them, what are you doing and what is the truth and what does this mean? And, and some of them died rather quickly and others of them lived for a while, but then they died eventually. Because, you know, telling the truth is really hard. Because in the Greek, the word for witness and for martyr is the same. But it is also the word for disciple. That it means the same thing. That ultimately, to, to learn what it means to live and to tell the truth is actually to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. And so the question is, do we want to be where Jesus is? Do we want to actually learn the truth about where Jesus is or not? Because when we don't, we are standing in the crowd, friends, and saying, I know what the scriptures say, but that is exactly what the Pharisees said. I know what the scriptures say, 
I know what the truth is. Crucify him. That's what they said. And the only people, the people that came to Jesus didn't say, I know the truth. They said, tell me the truth. I want the truth. I need the truth. Because no one else is telling it to me. Because no one else cares about me. Those are the people that ended up coming to Jesus. And there are very quickly, um, in this living of the life, you are not left by yourself to sort of figure those things out. There are distinct practices, and I will just name them really quickly. A foundational one is prayer. This is why we pray the Psalms. Um, When we pray the Psalms, we tell ourselves the truth about God and about one another, um, which is why um, part of why we prayed Psalm 43, send out your light and your truth. This is a fundamental way that we can... um, start talking in truthful language and as we speak the truth to one another then we begin to know it more deeply and in a proper way which is relational um, both with God and with one another the other way to tell the truth of course um, practice of telling the truth is confession and reconciliation Uh, Matthew 18 does not happen unless we're telling the truth about one another Uh, the whole book of Job is about Job actually telling the truth about his situation and all his friends saying Job you don't actually know um, what's going on But he was, I mean, he didn't, but he also was telling the truth. Like he hadn't done something totally wrong. Um, We actually saw that, that there was this other thing going on between God and the accuser, the Satan, um, that was part of it. And his friends didn't know anything about that. But then, of course, when he gets to God, he learns something that he didn't know. And God takes him on a tour where he's actually able to see how much of the truth he doesn't know even though he knew more of, the, uh, of others. Um, also, um, I will say, and I, you know, I can't help but make it sound selfish, but I promise it's not. Um, sermons go two ways. They come from the pulpit, but they go back to the pulpit as well. Um, listening to the, to the word is an important practice, and it's really hard. I am awful at it. Um, being a preacher makes you horrible at listening to sermons. I mean, just horrible. I mean, it makes it hard to worship just fundamentally, but it makes it hard to listen to. Um, but listening is, and listening to the word is a foundational practice. Hearing the word, um, praying the scriptures themselves um, is, a, is an ancient practice, Lectio Divina, of the, of the church, in which um, we come to, to dialogue with the truth um, and understand the, the scriptures themselves, not as this document containing secrets or principles of truth, but as the testimony of people bearing witness to God. That that is fundamentally what the scriptures are, and that witness is is being given to us, and we are asking for ourselves, what do we do with that? And the final witness thing I will say, um, practice I will say, is um, there's a long-standing practice in the Christian church of just being quiet and being silent. And that the first task of inquiry is listening. Um, And it is a good place to start. That listening to God in our prayers is important. In fact, our prayers, Eugene Peterson said, is is just a response to the things that God is doing in our life. And so listening is what is required of prayer. But it is also really important for one another. Because we um, are all a mess and we do bad things to each other and we hurt each other in all kinds of ways. Um, But most of us don't want to. 
Most of us just want to be heard and understood because we don't believe that God hears and understands us, and he does. He does. And when we can listen to one another, then we can begin to discover what that actually means and how we live out, out of that truth and bear witness to that truth. Okay, I'm done. We have one minute for questions. 30 seconds. Or I guess we'll wait until, we can wait until this high school kids come in here. But Thoughts, questions, concerns? I know that was a lot. Yes? I'm going to say that fond admirations and things to don't do, you're not supposed to admire fondly. Um, that it has to do with what, what we would determine some kind of bias, like deliberate bias, um, like a nepotism or something like that, where we're, we're, we're not telling the truth about someone because of our relationship with them, basically. Um, that's a poor way to say it, but I, I think that, you know, our love for someone sort of prevents us from telling the truth. It is a testimony. We, um, we can talk about this online. But yeah, I, I, there are a number of, one of the questions that um, we, <coughs> there are two questions that are asked, that are important to ask in relation to scriptures. One is what it is, and the other is what it is for. Um, but one of the, often we think of the scriptures as a number of different things. One of them is um, sort of a historical record of the facts. Um, it does include factual historical things, that is true, but it is not fundamentally that. Um, it is full of poetry. Poetry is full of metaphor. Mer metaphor is not about a historical record of the facts. Um, the, the Gospels themselves are bearing witness to Jesus in a particular kind of way. They differ in certain ways. And so testimony is, I think, the best paradigm to understand the kind of thing that the Christians are, and then to understand what they are for, which is the building up of God's people. Um, that what we get in the scriptures is the witness of those that have come before us, that, that saw God and testified to him. That's what, that's what Peter says um, in 2 Peter 1, that men were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were, and they were because they saw Jesus. He was there, he says, on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, and so he's talking about his experience there. That, I think, is fundamental to, to, to receiving the scriptures. All right, people are coming in. Let's, um, let's pray. Now, thank you um, for the truth that you are. We pray um, that you would open our hearts to receive it and to follow you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.